Board Game Geek Podcast, where we geek out about board games, the mechanisms behind them, and the people who create them. I'm your host, Candace Harris, and I'm here today with BGG News Editor-in-Chief, W. Eric Martin. Hey, Eric, how's it going today? Yeah, it's acceptable. <laughs> no complaints. Have you, uh, have you recovered from your extended uh, Germany trip? Yes. Actually, it was quite nice. After Spiel, I stayed in the Netherlands for a week with my wife, and we just went to cafes and hung out. It was like the vacation away from the child with no agenda. <laughs> it's the best type of vacation I've now discovered. That, that sounds lovely, and you pretty much never take vacations, so I'm sure you needed it. <laughs> this was my first time taking a vacation at Board Game Geek ever. So, first wow. time Wow. History, I just, I history. Like, I like what I do, so normally it's it's not working. <laughs> it's what I like. That's awesome. Yeah. How about you? Everything go fine? Yeah. So I after after we got back from Spiel, I did the second podcast episode with Beth, and then I think the very next day, so I had like no recovery time. And then I went up to Hanford, California to go to uh, GMT's warehouse weekend that they do in the Mm -hmm. fall. So they usually do like two a year. And And so the warehouse weekend is what? A sale? Playing? What is it? It is like a mini open gaming convention. So I think there are about 100 people who attend usually. I went last year also, so this was my second time. And you kind of like bring your own games. You know, you're at the GMT warehouse, so you can buy games. But most people like, you know, bring games and buy games. It's hard to resist. (laughs) I actually went in with the mindset of like, I'm only going to buy this one game if I can find it. And then, of course, I came home with a box. (laughs) (laughs) A box of games. (laughs) But ideally, you're meeting with people who have like taste so you can get things to the table that you might not otherwise. Exactly, exactly. And with a lot of war games, I find they are hard to get to the table. You know, with my usual kind of gaming group and friends and just the timing of where I live with people who are interested in those games and everything – so it's nice to kind of go and surround myself with people who are excited about historical strategy games and war games. And it's like, we're not only like you, people are playing Euro games and 18XX also. So it's just kind of this really chill, open gaming convention. And then on the Saturday of the warehouse weekend, it, it runs from Thursday to Sunday. Gene will give us a talk and give an update on everything. A lot of GMT game designers and developers are there. So they'll kind of give updates on games, like what's coming down the pike, what they're working on. And then I got to actually play a couple games with some GMT designers. I got to play with Harold Buchanan, who is the designer of uh, one of the more popular coin games, Liberty or Death. And he has a new kind of uh, GMT lunchtime series game, which is a very accessible kind of lightweight game that can be played in under an hour called Flashpoint South China Sea. So he taught it to me and uh, it was really cool to play with him. And then I also got to play 
Cross Bronx Expressway, which is a new game in the Irregular Conflict series that seems really, really interesting. I think it'll be out like in another year or so, but it's like a three-player game about the like Bronx highways getting built in the 70s, but each player represents, like I represented the community. I got to play with John Butterfield, which was cool. He was like the private sector, and then another player is the public sector. And it reminded me of kind of hegemony where everybody has their own goals, but everything you do is impacting the other forces or factions. So that was that was really neat. And it was just, I don't know, I if I can catch that warehouse weekend every time, I will go because it's just a really blast. People are positive and yeah, you get to play a lot of games. Twice a year. <laughs> twice a year, twice a year. And I missed the, the one in April because I had COVID. I was so bummed. <laughs> that Cross Bronx Expressway, it sounds like a very cool concept with a very different type of setting. Yes. You don't have sort of a, you know, urban build-up game where you have a community interest come into play. Right, right. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of uh, that game that's coming out, Hegemony, Lead Your Class to Victory, I think it is, where like one person plays the lower class, one person's the middle class, one person's like capitalist or something. I, I forget. I played it months ago and I thought it was really, really fascinating. So I'm loving seeing like these uh, different types of games coming out that are kind of like those like socioeconomic games, like sim- almost simulations. But in this case, it's a kind of a historical time frame, and you're learning about like what was going on in the Bronx in that time period, which was pretty neat. Yeah, that's a huge field to mine. There's not been much yeah. done on that yet, so yeah. for the future. Yes, totally, totally. But anyway. Today, since it's still October, and I haven't really caught up with you since you've been back from Spiel, we're going to discuss a few games that we both demoed. Well, not together, but we demoed at Spiel 2022. That's right. We spent almost no time together at Spiel. There's <laughs> so much ground to cover, to see you in <laughs> passing. That was messy. Yeah, exactly. It's It's crazy how massive it is. But before we jump into our spiel demo experiences, I'd love to hear what you've been playing lately. So uh, let's jump into fresh plays. Eric, what have you been playing lately? One game that hit the table multiple times all in one sitting was Trio. This is a game by Kaya Miyano that was first published as Nana by the Japanese publisher Mob Plus. Cocktail Games now has a license. It's going to reissue it everywhere that it can, debuting in France in January 2023. This is a combination of memory and deduction. You have a deck of cards numbered 1 to 12 with three copies of each. You deal out hands and some cards go on the table all based on the number of players. And you're trying to make trios. It's the name of the game now for the new version. You have to organize the cards in your hand from low to high. On a turn, you can reveal a card in the table or ask someone to reveal their lowest or highest card, including you. Ah, And someone reveals a card. 
you ask again or flip one on the table. And if they match, you keep going. If not, you put those cards back and that's it. So you have to remember where things were. But if they match and you reveal a third thing, you collect that trio. If you collect three trios, you win. Oh, cool. It's very straightforward. But the memory issue and the deduction issue play nicely because if I reveal your lowest card and it's a one, and then someone else and it's a three, okay, I got a little bit of information. And if on your turn, you reveal someone someone's lowest card and it's a one, Okay, well, you know that the other one's in your hand, but where's the third one? And if you don't, you know, this other person doesn't have it. And I didn't reveal my one. Hmm. Like, so (laughs) you can use both what's revealed and what's not revealed to figure out where things are. So if you get three, three trios, you win. If you collect the trio of sevens, you win. So there's this sort of, you know, the game progresses and then maybe instantly someone wins out of nowhere. And then there's a slightly different version where if you win linked trios, they win. There's a team version as well, playing with the person opposite you. It's all very straightforward and simple, but very compelling as you try to figure out why people are doing what they're doing. Ooh. That's a quick overview of trio due out next year. Okay, Sorry. cool. 2023. Yeah, that- Never say 20, next year. Yeah, never say next year. <laughs> That's right. No, no relative time time periods. Let's be specific. So, what about you? I have been playing quite a bit of Soul: Last Days of a Star. This is a originally was a 2017 release designed by Ryan Spangler and his brother Sean Spangler, and published by Elephant Laboratories. And it's a game that I've, I was, you know, prior to playing it for the first time on Friday, I had been like wanting to play for so long. And what happened was I reached out to Ryan when I heard about his new game coming out called Organism, which is going to be on Kickstarter at some point for, I think he's shooting for a 2023 release. But Organism looked really cool, and I knew he was planning to do a, a reprint of Soul. So I was like, hey, I'd, I'd be interested in checking that out, you know, ahead of the Kickstarter. And so Ryan reached out to me, I think it was just last week, and said, hey, I decided to um, split the Kickstarter, and I'm actually going to do the Soul reprint in, uh, and launch that in December. So he offered to send me a copy of it. To check it out. So I got a copy on Friday and I happened to have a game night on Friday and played it with four and just had a blast. Then I ended up playing it with Matt over the weekend and another time uh, since before recording this episode with you. But the idea is Soul is this kind of abstract strategy game with a lot of player interaction that has a theme to it, which players can kind of, you can kind of play into as much or as little as you want. The game is still interesting either way, but you're trying to, each player has their own kind of faction and they're, you're trying to transmit as much energy from the sun to get it back to your arc and uh, pretty much escape the solar system before the sun eventually explodes. 
So you have this this game board that's this bright, vivid image of the sun, and it has circles around it. So you have different layers, and there are like two layers that are the orbit around the sun, and then like three layers of the sun into kind of the core. And each player has this mothership that floats around in between the in the like middle of the outer orbit, floats around counterclockwise and that's kind of how you're keeping track of turn order and then you have these little ships called sun divers that you can kind of spawn from your mothership and then you can move around the board and you can put put them into different formations meaning i have two of my sun divers uh adjacent but like on layers like going into the core of earth or of uh, core of the sun and I can convert those two sundivers into a station, a building. So there are these three different types of buildings that you can kind of build out onto the board by getting your sundivers placed in these different formations. So once you have these buildings on the board, you can activate them. And one of them is like an energy node where you can gain energy. Another one lets you gain more sundivers that you can kind of spawn onto the board. And then the other one is going to let you spend energy to get momentum, which is your victory points in the game. But meanwhile, as you're doing things like building these stations on the board and activating stations, you have this instability deck of cards that's kind of the timer of the game. So you, you know, the further you are into the core of the sun, the more cards you're going to draw. And in the deck, there are all these cards with different suits that you'll play with. And one of the suits that you always play with is the solar flare. And that's kind of the timer for the end of the game. But the neat thing is, there are only three actions. So on your turn, you're just going to either move, convert, convert your sun divers into like one of those types of buildings, or you're going to activate buildings. And when you activate, you're activating one type of building or station. And the cool thing is you can activate your stations and your opponent's stations. And when you do, they can potentially get a bonus, like bonus option from whatever you're doing, like whether you're gaining energy or building more sun divers or gaining victory points. So there's a whole like timing element to this game because if I'm going to like, I'm going to try to move my sun divers so I can be efficient and, you know, trigger all like three versions of one station, but I'm also going to try to time it to when my opponents won't be able to take advantage of the bonus because if they can't or don't want to, I get to do it. So it's just this like really cool game. And then there's this whole pressure of like, as you're drawing cards from the instability deck, the sun is getting closer and closer to exploding. So there are exactly 13 solar flare cards just randomly shuffled in the deck. And you just, you don't know when that's going to happen. The other cool thing about it is the fact that the other cards in the instability deck have a suit and you play with these different effects. So each card has a different effect there could be an effect that lets you move your stations, like move your buildings around, like you can fly your sun divers, which is really cool. And every time you gain cards, you can only hold one card at a time. So 
you can trigger the card like whenever the timing of the effect happens, but they're really neat effects. And there's a whole deck of different effects you can play with. So you're like randomizing the suits and the effects, but you always mix in these solar flare cards, which are going to be the timer for the end of the game. And you you just you're just trying to gain the most momentum before the sun explodes. And it plays in about like an hour and a half, uh, maybe less, depending on, you know, how fast people are making decisions. Have you ever played it before? I have not. Ah. Yes. See, it's it's very interesting hearing you describe it. Uh, I think this show is a very good representation of our taste, where yours are very much <laughs> driven this immersive theme, something you're going in deep on something, and mine is so minimalistic, there's barely a description. <laughs> That's why I love talking to you and hearing about, because I find some gems from you. But yeah, I think I think you would actually like really dig Soul. Um but I'm I'm looking for like I feel like it always has an exciting end to it too, but the just the timing of managing your sun divers and building the right buildings and trying to like set yourself up to make sure you have energy to to actually gain more sun divers or the, what is the timing of like putting out the the towers so now I can spend energy on momentum you know and it's like oh like in in my game uh, last night. Matt built a tower and he was already ahead a couple points and everybody else is like, oh, we better start building towers so we can gain momentum too. So there's just like, it's a lot of player interaction and it's like, you you know, it's just super interesting. I'm, I'm really digging it. All right. Yeah. So that is Soul Last Days of a Star and that is going to be reprinted and on Kickstarter in December of 2022. What else have you been playing, Eric? So one title that got through the table was one that I pointed out to you and that we each <laughs> yep. bought at Spiel. This is Yellows by Guido Eckhoff and Avdi Führer, uh, mm, published by cool. Spiel Das. Uh, it's a game for two to five, two to four players in which you are riding the winds. This is the, the theme of it, that you are controlling the winds to move your ships to various harbors around the game board. And how this is represented in gameplay is you have a deck of cards that are half purple and half gray with numbers zero to five on them. You shuffle them all up. Every player gets three cards in hand. On a turn, you must play a card and you play it on the purple discard pile or the gray one. And then the sum of the two revealed numbers indicates what harbor you take an action at. And there's numbers three to nine for the harbors, but there are also higher numbers for spots down the river. There's a few rivers that lead off from some harbors toward temples. And when you put down a card, if there's if the symbols on the two topmost cards match, you get a bonus win. You can spend win to increase or decrease the number as much wind as you want. So you can get a total above 10, which is the highest you can get with cards, and shoot a ship down the river. Hmm. Or just adjust to get whatever harbor you want. And at the harbor, you're going to take some action after you move a ship there. You can collect gems because there's a gem scoring system at the end. You can get more ships. You can put out a settlement, which increases your hand size. You can just score points. You can collect wind. 
You can move ships down the rivers. You can also move a profit on uh, some steps to different platforms. And the rules specify Elos is a simple game. And it really is. Like, it's even in the rule book. <laughs> it's a simple game. You're going to play a card, move a ship, take that action, refill your hand. And you go through the deck one, one and a half, or two times, depending on whether there's two, three, or four players. If you get a ship all the way to the end of the river, it goes in a temple where you get some points or points in a bonus action. That's mostly it. You're going to manage the cards to try to do things, but you are dependent upon other people because everyone is collectively determining what the wind value is. So the theme is not necessarily relevant, except that you do feel like you're sort of riding the winds because if the total is high and then I can only affect one of the piles. So high numbers are at one end of the board and low numbers are at the other end. And we sort of drift high to low collectively as we're playing cards onto these piles, unless you have a whole bunch of wind just to adjust what you're doing. So the wind theming is arbitrary, and yet it feels like you're actually drifting back and forth as those numbers go high and low, and you're trying to play the right card at the right time to collect the bonus win and do the harbor you want and build up over time. There's some just like, I'm going to do an action because this is what I can do. Like you may have something you want to do, but if you don't have the cards or the piles don't match, you do it the best you can and manage everything to take temples. There's limited temple spots. It's such a, typical German game because the temples have scoring and of course the points go down. So there's an incentive to get there first. Mm -hmm. You have points or points in a bonus where of course the points are much less. And so is the value of the bonus enough to make up for what you're giving up? It's, uh, it's very archetypical in terms of the design, very classic German style. And it is indeed a simple game. I've played three times, twice with three players, once with four. Um, I crushed in two of those games. <laughs> Just everything nice. coming together perfectly. It's, it's <laughs> weird because it's hard to plan. You know you want to score points. Mm-hmm. Okay. From there. Now what? <laughs> okay, now I want to move stuff down the river. But, okay, how can I do that efficiently? And so it's like little bits and pieces you kind of put together and you you can't have a full game plan, but things just develop naturally as the game flows. Because as you bring a ship into the temple, it can't be used anymore. You essentially sacrifice it and we're done. So if you want to do that a lot, you need to bring in more ships, but you don't have to do that. You can also bring in settlements to give yourself more cards and more variety. But are you getting uh, the settlement? If a settlement is in a harbor, you don't need a ship there. So now maybe you don't need ships. You just go with settlements. <laughs> it's wow. very streamlined and simple. And yet 
uh, feels again the wind theme works because you are kind of going with the flow as as you get cards in hand and try to figure out well this is what i can do the next turn or two maybe and then take it from there so that's an overview of yellows uh i don't know if you played yet i convinced you to get it uh possibly you'll regret it we'll see or you'll like it i'm glad you convinced me to pick it up because I do, even though I do play a lot of heavier games, I do like just sometimes getting those like lighter games to the table. I play with a lot of different people with different experience levels in games. And it sounds like a fun one to explore. I, I really like how the, the wind plays in too. It sounds neat. It's interesting because there's minimal interaction. There's a race for gems because there's a limited number on the board and you get a set bonus if you get a set of different gems and you can get multiple sets. So if I steal it, you can't have it and I get it and I can sort multiple sets. So there's, you know, and a limited number of temple spots to go to and the win itself that we collectively determine. It was interesting too that speaking with uh, designer Avid Fuller at, at Spiel, he said, I, I really appreciated this. He said, you pointed out something about my designs that I had not noticed myself, that every one of them is really driven by player interaction, where collectively ah. you're determining the state of the game. And I, I appreciate that. I'm glad that that I'm helpful, I guess, to a designer <laughs> pointing out this comment. That's right awesome. And, and this game carries over in that same regard. Uh, I love... Fielder's game Pagoda and Monasterium is really nice. Take is is really good. They're not similar at all. So there's no sort of similarity except this sort of player interaction element. So I was Which happy to see that cool. in Elos and hopefully you'll try it and like it as well. Yeah, I will definitely try it and let you know my thoughts. So my other game that I've been uh, that I played recently and I've played a couple times in the past few months that uh, I wanted to bring up was uh or is Blood on the Clock Tower which is uh you know, which you're familiar was in the works for a very long time. I think we <laughs> filmed an overview at Origins 2018. I forget exactly wow. but it was Many years ago. Yes, yes. That's what I finally, it's finally out. I know a lot of people who uh, backed it on Kickstarter and were very excited, you know, a couple months ago when they got their copies. Uh, But it's designed by Stephen Medway and it's published by the Pandemonium Institute. And it's a big social deduction kind of murder mystery game. Uh, I think it plays up to... 20 people, so maybe like 5 to 20 people. I've played it with 16. I've played it with 10, you know. Wow. And I've okay. <laughs> exactly. And I've had a blast. Like basically the idea is you get a secret role and you're either on the good side or the bad side and depending on the player count, you know, there are a number of baddies in there uh one player is going to be the imp or the the main demon that the good side is trying to kill but then there are all these other uh special characters so everybody has 
their own character. You're not just a generic, like, good guy or good, you know, good girl, whatever. So you get this, you get your character assignment, and then there's a a storyteller in the game, which I guess in, like, an RPG would be, like, the DM sort of thing. But there's a storyteller who then collects everybody's roles, and you sit in a circle so that the storyteller know, you know, everybody kind of sits in a circle. We've played all four games I've played. We play outside with candles and like kind of <laughs> mysterious, suspenseful music to kind of like really set the tone. Uh, but the game is kind of split up into a day phase and a night phase. And during the night phase, the storyteller Kind of, and the storyteller at the very beginning of the game says, like, you know, something happened, and uh, you know, they were they were killed, and nobody knows what happened uh, aside from that. But then every night, someone else uh, dies. On mostly, mostly, someone else is going to die. The demon is going to kill someone, and there's other information that certain characters will get. Like if there's a poisoner character in play, which is also on the bad side, they would get tapped on their shoulder. And oh, I should mention in the night phase, everyone has their eyes closed. So the storyteller kind of like walks around in a circle and then will tap on certain people and instruct them to either point to someone else to do something or point to someone else that they want to kill. You know, so in the case of the poisoner, they would be tapped on the shoulder, open their eyes, and then they would point to a different player that they want to poison for the round. And poisoning is kind of like basically giving, like someone will have false information. Like they'll think they, they'll get some information in the night. So the person who's poisoned, but it won't be correct. Okay. And so then during the day phase um, and multiple, multiple people might be getting information in the night, getting tapped on their shoulders, opening their eyes, getting some information or pointing to someone and then closing their eyes. And then after that's all wrapped up, then there's a day phase and everyone gets to like go talk to each other, start asking questions, deducing, like trying to figure out who's who, who, you know, you're trying to get information. If you're on the good side, you're trying to figure out who the bad people are so you can eliminate them and win the game. If you're um, the bad people, you're just trying to stay incognito and not let anyone know that you're bad and kind of keep going through the game, turning people against each other potentially. And uh, yeah, just trying to like keep your cool and not let people know that you're bad. So you, you know, people will be splitting off into pods talking like, Hey, like, what's your role? I I don't know if I want to tell you my role until you tell me your role. And you're, you're trying not to like give information away until you can trust people. Uh, so, and everybody's character has like their own different ability. Like, I think I played the monk on the good side and I got to every night point to someone and make sure they stayed alive. I think that was my that was my role. But everybody has like their own uh, different role, and it's just it's just so fascinating because then you'll get back after you know you get a certain amount of time to talk to each other. Then you'll get back in the circle, and the storyteller kind of takes over, and you'll have a vote to see if someone should be uh, killed off. <laughs> You know, so there's, again, more discussion and you can nominate someone to kind of be killed off. And 
then there's a vote and you just kind of go around the circle seeing if people agree. If you have a certain amount of votes, that person dies. But if you if you die, you become a ghost. So you're still participating in the game. You just have limited, uh, I think you only get one more vote at that point and you can't ever nominate someone to be on the chopping block. Right. So you kind of go through these day and night phases. But I, I feel like it's just one of the most, I don't even know if it's a game or if I would consider it more of just a social experience that I am just really enthralled with. Every time I play it, I, you know, that night we always just talk about, you know, we'll play multiple games because it takes about like an hour, hour and a half to play a game of it. And then we'll usually play back to back games and we'll just in between just talk to each other about, oh, like you did this thing or remember you were saying this to me and I couldn't trust you. Oh, sorry, I didn't trust you. You know, I should have believed you. But but you were giving me this vibe because you did X, Y, Z. And I, you know, like it's just such a cool social experience. I think there are like a bunch of different versions like where you could play with different characters, and which is part of the reason it took so long to to come out. So have you ever, you've never played Blood on the Cock Tower, I presume? I have not. So I mean, it definitely gives, right, it's the werewolf mafia vibe, but with way more involved, I guess, in terms of personal powers. And yes. the storyteller sounds like a very involved role if they're tracking what information to give to everyone run the circles slowly drip that story out hmm yes totally not my thing but (laughs) (laughs) it's more because i'm very bad at reading people who are lying or telling the truth like i'm (laughs) very bad at that so then it becomes a game of me trying not to interact with anyone because i can't figure out whether you're truthful or not. So I, I think I, I lose a lot on that. I know some people who are super yeah. into deduction, social deduction games. It's just an experience. I just have not been able to, to uh, get into. Yeah. And it's, uh, I always hate when I'm on the bad team, like that just stresses me out so much. But the very first time I played it, Matt and I, my partner, Matt and I were both, bad. So we didn't have, we weren't pitted against each other. We were working together and we played with like probably, I don't know, half the group we were playing with, we had never met before. So there's a whole element of not, not knowing the people you're playing with sometimes depending on, you know, if you're playing a game with people you've never met, which I love because then it just makes it even more challenging to deduce if you can trust them if you believe them are they just do they just not understand something or are they quiet you know right but uh the other thing is with the imp the main uh the demon the main bad player they get told at the beginning of the game a certain amount of roles that are not in play so that they can tell their minions hey you can lie to people and say you know you're the chef or yeah okay so in my first game with like 16 people, there were only three open roles, I believe. So the the imp himself picked one. He gave me one and he gave one other bad person one, but he couldn't give Matt a role. So Matt's going around making up a role and 
eventually we got to a point where we're sitting in the circle about to do our vote and everybody's like, let's just go around and tell, you know, the, the good side was they were feeling like we're about to lose. They were about to lose the game. So they're like, let's go around and everybody say their role. So go around a circle. People are saying their roles. Matt said the exact same role that I was told. So I looked at him and I was just like, oh my goodness. And I looked at him and I put on my best, like, I probably could have won an Oscar. And I was just like, I, I was like, no, I'm that person. And I'm like, what are you? I was like, you're lying. And I'm, you know, I turned it on so well. And I made everyone think that Matt was bad and I was good. And they believed it, but we were both bad. But I had to because I was like, right. what am I going to do? I don't know any other role that I can lie as. Uh, so anyway, it was just lots of like really exciting moments like that. And I I like kind of the the stress of it. And the I, I actually like the challenge of being on the bad side and trying to convince people that I'm bad, which I've. I think it's challenging for me. <laughs> yes. I could not do that at all. That's that's also, I am extremely suspicious because I'm just quiet in those types of games. I can't figure out how to lie effectively. I don't know. It sounds <laughs> like it should just be mob rule the game. Yeah. Right. The crowd goes crazy and then we kill someone and then we're just like, all right, who's next? <laughs> that is, that is blood on the clock tower. Let's jump in and talk about our, our our spiel demo experiences. Uh, I know, again, like we didn't see each other. I'm sure we like saw a lot of different things. Maybe we overlapped here and there. What are some of the games that you demoed at spiel? It was interesting as we started to talk about this for our podcast topic. I was like, how many games did I actually play? And I played, I think, six total. So this is almost everything I played. I played almost nothing there. Um, (laughs) But for part of one day, I was going around with my friend Ken Shoda, and we were both very interested in abstract strategy games. We both love Kinesia. Very similar tastes lined up. And ran across this game called Philosophy, uh, designed by Gallen Goodwick, published by Quality Beast. And it was clearly abstract strategy. You're looking at this board that looks like a plus. There's a central three by three area and then some areas on both all the sides. And you are trying to make a line of three pieces. That's it. And the pieces are all supposed to represent your ideas. And you are making arguments with your ideas, trying to form them into concepts, right? This is all the abstract theming for the game philosophy. In game terms, you're putting down a piece on the board. And pieces have symbols that show their power and which direction that power takes place. So you put a piece on the board, and then maybe I put a piece on the board that pushes a piece that's to my upper right and I push it in a certain direction. And so I will move you. You want it to be there? Well, now you're somewhere else. I have redirected you with my counter argument. My idea is bringing mm. up in the conversation. <laughs> and the powers stay in play on the board. So if I put down a piece that pushes you in front of another piece of mine, where the arrow is pointing, then you're, that piece affects you again. 
So possibly you have a little chain moving your piece across the board multiple times, putting you in a new place. But again, the whole goal is just get three pieces in a row. Um. And it's straightforward and yet not because (laughs) everything is all about using those powers in order to set up threats, but you can't move your own pieces on the board once they're down. Only the other player is going to move them. So you're trying to set things up Ah. so that, you know, I'm doing something that you then have to respond to. And ideally you're going to, I see all the pieces you have available. They're all different powers. Where can you possibly respond with which power and where would you push me? And so if I'm anticipating that, then we need them this time and so forth and so on. It's all the sort of usual abstract strategy play. And there's only, there's one piece that was super, it feels OP. It's the broken piece, but of course you each have one. So it's (laughs) not broken. And it's a piece you put down that points to the opponent and then pulls them backwards. And when they're pulled, they push your piece as well. So this is the only time that you get to move one of your own pieces on the board. I'm reining you in and then pulling, you're pushing me as well. Normally pieces, pieces do push normally other pieces, but now you're actually pushing yourself. And it's incredibly powerful. And you're trying to keep the possibility of that. But you have to imagine so many different <laughs> you know, possibilities of where someone could go. It becomes uh. extremely challenging. And so I think we played that four times. Oh, and wow. We were, cool. And we were both kind of by it. And then we found out it's actually being crowdfunded uh, with a campaign that ends October 27th, which will be after this podcast is recorded. So. Maybe or maybe not. <laughs> this game will exist. I don't know. I don't know if it's it's funded or not. Uh, it has awesome. extra, extra pieces. You can play with three or four players. Uh, but, you know, maybe you want that that uh, boiled down two-player perfect information after extra energy game. That's philosophy that may or may not have been funded by the time this podcast goes live. <laughs> Cool. I love abstract strategy games. I've never heard of that, so I'll have to check it out. It does sound uh, quite interesting. Yes, the themed, I mean, themed abstract, it, but it works in the sense that, yeah, I am pushing you around. And you're like, well, let me tell you. And you come in with your rejoinder. And, yeah, it makes That's sense. That's cool. It works well. That's cool. So you have something yeah, else, I, probably the other end of the scale. Yeah, but my games are probably going to be a little bit on the other end of the scale. But the first one is Fate Forge Chronicles of Khan, which is a game, uh, again, this is something that was on Kickstarter, I think, in late September through October. So um, it might be available for late pledge at some point, I would assume. It's designed by Gordon Kalea and published by Mighty Boards. And it's basically a fantasy-themed kind of action-adventure, narrative-driven, cooperative campaign game. And it's driven by an app. So you'll have an app that kind of tells you a story. It's very accessible and kind of almost like an RPG. Uh, you can play with one to four players. But the the one cool thing about it is it's kind of, giving you a Gloomhaven type of experience, 
but in a more accessible format where you can kind of play through a what they call I think combat scenes or like a scenario in about an hour. So you can, you know, there there's not a whole lot of setup to it, so it's something you could probably get like a couple games in in an evening or just one here and there. But I thought that was kind of unique about it. But in the game, each player has a character that has like asymmetric abilities and you have these uh, like kind of custom dice that you use for combat dice. And, um, you know, depending on your character, you'll have a different population of dice that you start the game with uh, than maybe some of the other characters. Like if I'm somebody who has a bow and arrow, I'm going to have dice that are going to help me make ranged attacks. Whereas if I just have a sword, I'm going to have dice that only let me make melee attacks. But the dice also have like shoes on them, I think, to like indicate movement. And um, again, I didn't really like Matt and I demoed this together and we didn't really like go through the whole narrative part of it. But uh, I talked to Gordon about it and he made it sound like it's going to be like really, really like the story is supposed to be really, really cool. So I can't really speak to that. But we did uh, set up a scenario and the app kind of tells you how to lay out these square tiles and where to put uh, enemy tokens or different types of enemies that are like wooden discs with stickers on them. I don't know, you know, it was, this was not the final version. So I don't know if there'll be stickers in the future or printed on them, but you have these different color discs that are out on the map and the app tells you like where to place them. And then there are cards that tell you what the stats are of each of these different types of enemies that you're going to be kind of going up against. You'll choose what the turn order is. So if you and I are playing, we could say, oh, okay, this this round, like, let's say, Eric, you'll go first, I'll go second. But then the app is going to tell you where to place this enemy reaction token. So you, like, kind of place your to- turn order tokens and the app is going to dictate, like, oh, you know, there's going to be an enemy reaction either in the middle of certain players at the end, but that's when like one enemy will kind of attack back. Um, And then the enemies also have their own phase where they all kind of activate, but you're kind of moving through this map, taking out bad guys, your enemies, completing different objectives. Like there are different tokens and things that might, you might find an encounter on the map itself. But the way you do it is each round you roll your dice, but you roll your combat dice behind a screen. So you're, even though it's cooperative, your opponents don't know what your exact uh, dice results are that you're going to be able to use on, um, you know, this, your next turn of combat. And you have to kind of discuss your game plan, like, hey, I'm going to move into here and I I can probably take out this person. But you can't say, I have two attack dice and I have two movement dice. You know, you can't be exact. Then each character also has like a little special ability. And then you have these skill cards, which uh, these skill cards you can keep acquiring throughout, uh, throughout the game. And it's played as a campaign and everything. So it'll kind of continue, you know, you'll continue through a campaign. But the skill cards allow you to place dice on them from your dice pool to like activate some some cooler effect or or beef up an attack. So I thought that was really neat. Everything was very kind of clean and simple and easy to understand. But when it came to the decisions, 
it felt very puzzly. Like, oh, like how are we have to like kind of get to that before these enemies activate. So how are we going to attack? And, you know, and the, and the whole fact that your your dice are kind of hidden from each other, it, it makes it a little bit more challenging, but also I found it to be exciting. So, um, yeah, so you kind of, you'll play through a bunch, of, I guess, you know, the app will tell you when you're ready for the next combat sequence, like how many rounds it is, which types of enemies are there, what your main objective is to kind of be successful. And then eventually, like all the enemies, after all the players take turns, again, with that like enemy reaction somewhere in the player turn order, then all the enemies activate and do something. And that's on their cards, but it's not like, it's not complicated. Like it's very, like the design was very clean. Everything is meant to be simple and accessible for people to kind of get into (laughs) easily. Um, And then also it, it reminded me of, it reminded me of a mix of Gloomhaven or Jaws of the Lion because I've actually I've never actually played uh, the big box Gloomhaven yet, right. um, but I have played Jaws of the Lion quite a bit. So it gave me like some feelings of that, but also with Destinies, which is an app-driven kind of a simpler RPG adventure board game, but the actual game for Destinies is a little bit more on the RPG side. Like I'm going to a place to meet with people and I'm trying to figure out something, but this is more like kind of focused on these, these combat sequences, um, which were really cool and puzzly. Hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So that, that kind of, that kind of caught me off guard because I didn't know about it much. I mean, there are just so many games all the time coming out and I did not know much about this, um, and that's uh, Fate Forge Chronicles of Khan until I went to Spiel. <laughs> there you go. Yes, you can find yeah. so many things. There will be overwhelmed <laughs> with choices there. Uh, sometimes choices that are not even visible. Uh, the mm. Choices that you might see only if you're a member of the media and get invited to play something. <laughs> As with my second uh, game that I played. <laughs> nice segue. Nice segue. Yes, yes. <laughs> this, that game was After Us. And it's a game for one to six players by designer Florian Syriax and publisher Catch-Up Games that's coming out early in 2023. And the title After Us is relevant because humans are gone sometime in the future. And we represent a group of primates that are walking the earth, uh, looking at the remnants of humanity and trying to make use of it. Uh, by scoring mm. points. That, that's how, you know, we, people <laughs> determine who wins or not. It's all points. And you have a group of, I believe, tamarins are your initial cards. And each card you have has three lines on it or three rows of symbols. But typically, the symbols are only a left half or a right half. So on a turn, you're all playing simultaneously. You have a hand of four cards. You're going to put your four cards down in a line and the left and right halves will combine as you are putting cards together in whatever arrangement you want in the line. And you will collect resources for each complete box. And Mm -hmm. the resources are, what are they? Fruits, uh, 
I only remember them as orange, blue, and black. I don't remember the actual thing. <laughs> and batteries. It's like fruit, coal, and a nut. And then there's batteries. Apparently, humans left lots of batteries behind. And <laughs> some boxes allow conversion, where you can convert one thing to another or just something into points. And the initial tamarins, the bottom line, it's only the right half. That's it. You do nothing with that bottom part. But after each player has acquired resources, they made any trades, you're going to choose one of four tokens because you can get better primates that come in four types that correspond to the tokens you have. We choose one and reveal it simultaneously. If you have enough resources, you can get a primate of that type, either level one or level two. And one type of primate specializes in batteries. They really love batteries. They do awesome things with batteries. You want more battery, battery, battery. There's three different battery <laughs> powers that are revealed at the start of a game. And if you get enough batteries, you can do stuff with them. For example, one of our powers was just, if you get five batteries, transform them to five points. That's it. There was another, you get, I think, nine batteries, and you acquire a level two primate. Your choice, what type. So there's different different battery powers. One type of primate specializes just in points. And you want points because the game is a race to 80 points. You keep playing rounds until someone hits 80 points, game over, they win. Or, of course, multiple people do it. High, high score wins. One, huh. one type of primate specializes in rage, which that sounds <laughs> scary. So if you collect enough rage you can eliminate a primate that is in play. So long, primate. You can, you know, <laughs> whether you drove them off or whether you tore them in half, it's left unclear. But they're gone from your deck, all right? So it's got the standard deck thinning of a deck-building game. Use rage to get out the useless tamarins and get better things. And the fourth type cool. reuses a box that is in play. So whatever you built, you get to reuse something. So as you acquire these new primates, they go on the top of your deck. So it'll come into play immediately on the next turn. And you just keep putting it together. So it's a very solitaire feel. You're doing this all simultaneously. But it is far more interesting than... Uh, something like Cascadia. Cascadia has now become my go-to game for a solitaire game that I don't find interesting. Like solitaire, Cascadia, you're, <laughs> you're drafting something and building your own tableau, but it feels very flat. I'm gaining two points. I gain three mm -hmm. points. I gain two points. I gain four points. There's no, there's no big moments in the game. It's a mm -hmm. slow buildup of things. And that's mostly it. And here, each round, you have a puzzle of how am I going to organize these cards to get the best stuff? You can't get everything. There's always going to be open halves on the left or right side of the row. But some things are better than others. You arrange it this one way, and it's like, I can change one battery into a point. Or I can change one battery into three points. Or nothing into these two resources. You can have, like, empty trades like that. Hmm. So gotcha. you're puzzling something together and trying to just ramp up to 80 points as quickly as you can. So that's it. One to six Sounds players. Cool. Uh, it's called after us. The 
front cover. It's um, Vincent Dutre art. Vincent Dutre does like art for one third of the games out there, I think. And it's all these <laughs> primates in front of cool. a falling apart Eiffel Tower. Wow. It's very thematic. The the publishers are, of course, trying to license different versions of After Us to other people, other companies, and other languages. And they say, maybe if it all works out, maybe they can have different landmarks that primates are in front of. So, you know, if you go, ah. if you have an Italian version, it's going to be primates in front of the Colosseum or, you know, just something like that. Cool. And of course, you're like, That's well, if they do an English cool one, idea. they have to be in front of the Statue of Liberty, right? have to it's a little on the nose but we'll see we'll see what gets licensed where but uh there's no language on anything so it is language independent apart from the rules just slap those primates together and make combos there you go slap those primates together that's right that should be that (laughs) tagline on the box it's perfect after us slap those primates together that's right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, my next game, I definitely will not be able to speak to in as much detail as uh, you with After Us, but it's, uh, and it's because it's a massive game. Yes. It's called Europa Universalis, The Price of Power. And it's uh, it's designed by Ivan Vetlison and it's published by Ajir Games. And it's basically a big 4X grand strategy kind of civilization building game that's based on the Europa Universalis video game series by Paradox Interactive. And apparently, based on people who are sitting at my demo table and what I've read a little bit on uh, BGG, it does an excellent job at kind of adapting the qualities of the video game and, and what you're doing in the video game in into translating it into the board game. Right. So I can't speak to that because I've never actually played the video game, but it's a one to four player game. Uh, David Turtsy designed the solo mode and uh, there's a deluxe edition with an expansion that can let you play up to six players and like a bigger map. Basically players are representing different European powers uh, back in 1444, it's kind of a historical setting. And the goal of the game is to build the most successful empire, you know, gain the most victory points from different things like exploring territories and you d- diplomatic relations. Like you'll get points for like victories and wars and completing secret objectives and more. One of the uh, cool things I kind of grasped from it from just the couple of turns we did is that every round there are event cards revealed and it might be one per player or like maybe one plus the number of players. There are these event cards that are laid out. And at some point during the round, every player must trigger one of those events. So it's not like a game where you flip one event card and that event happens, but instead you have five, maybe in a four player game, I think it was five different events And at some point, it doesn't have to be the first action you take on your turn because you're going to take turns taking an action in, you know, clockwise order. But at some point before you kind of pass for the round, you have to trigger one of these events, which is going to kind of alter the state of the game and impact maybe some players negatively. So, you know, deciding when to kind of take one of those events uh, versus doing other stuff is kind of important. But then you also will draw a 
a, a certain amount of action cards and there are like three different decks of action cards, I think representing administrative, like diplomatic and military actions. Um, and then on your player board, everybody has a player board with where they'll kind of maintain their army forces and other stats for their faction. Uh, but you have wooden cubes representing uh, your monarch powers. And again, they're broken into buckets for administrative, diplomatic, and military actions. And you can play these action cards that you'll buy um, and spend these uh, different cubes from your, your monarch powers cubes that are relate. Like if I want to build up my army, I have to spend my military cubes. But you can also research ideas, which are like technologies. So it has like that kind of civilization building to it. You also can have advisors and leaders. And there there were a lot of different uh, military units, a lot of different components to this. I'm actually really excited to play it, but I know it's going to be kind of a bear to learn. I think the rule book is like 40 pages or something. Um, and there's just like, I'll... <laughs> yes, it's my reaction there. <laughs> and I think there, there's just a, there's a lot going on. So I, I kind of barely grasped it all, grasped it all from that demo session. But it just, you know, it, it was the kind of game that made me want to like set it up, get together with four people or or maybe six, and um, you know, l- learn all the rules and then actually like play a full game of it. But I enjoyed it quite a bit because I do love like civilization building games. And actually, I read that the solo mode is really cool, too. So I don't know if any other civilization building games have a solo mode. Hmm. Not yeah. sure, but that that sounds interesting. So I'm going to be sure to like try that out, too. So that is Europa Universalis, The Price of Power. Thoughts? Uh, I like how you said, I'm not going to describe mine in depth. And then you... <laughs> pretty deep it seems and giving an overview of the game so Uh, i mean if that seemed deep you you have not seen anything because there's like a whole sequence of play but that was very very high level right (laughs) it's there yes 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 but you know seemed to, to definitely cover the 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 scope of the game there Good, good, good. <laughs> yes, I also have no, I have no video game experience at all that I can speak of. So, not even Tetris. Okay, if you go back twenty years, I played Tetris. I I played Portal. <laughs> there you go. I played Portal. There and you I have it, everyone. Lego Dimensions. Eric is a video game player. Yes. officially. Uh, I've also, <laughs> I come think of it, I have played Madden with my son because that's all he wants to play. That's it. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I like I like sports video games actually. Yeah, it's definitely I am I'm the the kicking boy here. Uh if you don't play a lot, then you don't really <laughs> know what you're doing. And then the expert player is just like dunking on you the whole time. Crushes you. Yes. Crushes it's you. <laughs> Can I score one touchdown? That's all you're trying to do. That's my goal. Life goals, life goals. Yes. So what's your next game? Uh, So my next game, the only connection with your game previously is that this is a one-player game. So one player could play Europa Universalis, and one player could play Scoventier, designed Mm -hmm. by Morton Monrad Peterson, who has done lots of uh, Automa solo versions for different games. This is being published by Impatience. 
that's the new game company for Shadi Torby, oh. who has designed all of the Oniverse games. They were previously licensed and published by Z-Man, and now he is doing them all himself. And so the company is called Impatience. Patience like uh, I am patient and I'm sitting around. That type of patience. I, I am yes, patient. I saw I saw this because I went there and I picked up Stellarian. Yes. Because I have all, I think I have all of those solo games, but that, yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. I didn't demo it. So keep talking. Keep okay. talking. So yes, Stellarian <laughs> is the latest in the Oniverse title. There's three more titles that are coming as indicated in the included catalog, but he is not just, uh, Shadi Torby is not just going to publish his own designs, but other Designs as well. Not necessarily, I think, all solitaire, but at least the first one. So Skovendir is based on Danish mythology. And the rough version, I'm going to simplify a lot because I played only half a game on Sunday. The worst time to play where my brain is full. Um, (laughs) You're setting up a ring of trees to represent the forest and your character is a badger called Vogter who is being chased by uh, the devil essentially uh, Gamble Eric so nice name there um, <laughs> and if, if uh, Gamble Eric catches your badger you're done <laughs> and to win the game you must dispatch all of the minions of Gamble Eric so there are six minions, at least in the basic version that I was playing, uh, with different two of each strength, two, three, and four. And to play the game, you're presented with a deck of cards that have allies in them, along with representations of Kamala Eric and some other things. You lay out a row of three cards. You are going to draft one of the three cards and use it in some manner. You can discard it for a power. I'm going to mess this up because, again, this was the Sunday play. The (laughs) the cards each have two things on them, and you can discard it to use its special power, or you can add it to your hand, or you can play it as an ally onto your forest. These are things I'm remembering here. And you need a certain collection of allies in your hand in order to defeat a minion, but they all have to be of the same type. Mm, you're putting allies in the forest to protect the trees and provide some defense against Gamli Eric. One of the costs you can pay to play a card is to damage a tree. And if a tree is damaged, you can put an ally on it to protect it from further damage. Because if you don't have that and you have to damage a tree again, then that tree is gone, which then shrinks the circle that the badger and Gamli Eric are chasing around. So it puts less distance between you. So you are drafting cards turn by turn to use their powers or keep them as allies, do something with them. If a Gamle Eric figure gets to the front of the line, you must choose that. You can't have a choice of which of the three things to do. You must take that card, which moves him in the circle. And there's certain cards as well that will then shuffle the discards back into the deck. So as you're pulling allies out of the deck, well, the Gamla Eric cards all go back in. So slowly the deck gets polluted and then it's going to be a clock that keeps pressing further 
as you go yeah. through. So you must try to get rid of those minions as quickly as possible. That's the gist of the game. Cool. The gist of Scoventeer, which will be released, I believe, in the first half of 2023. I believe there are some expansion elements as well, similar to all of the Honorverse titles where you have a base game and then multiple expansions to shift things up. You can awesome. adjust the difficulty, of course, put in more trees or fewer trees or this, that, all sorts of ways to, to change things, I imagine. But that's the, the gist of it. So solo games are just such a huge part of the market and there's a yes, hardcore yes. audience for that and it's not a bad thing to do to specialize in that yeah i love it i was actually really excited like i went to spiel knowing i was going to pick up uh stellarian and i actually played it on the airplane home i needed i needed two trays because you have to lay out a lot of different <laughs> cards but i thought that was like i i like all of his games and and this one I was it kind of caught me off guard, but I didn't get a chance to try it. But I definitely want to try it, and I'm excited that he's branching out with different designers right. too. Although I should mention, uh, art by Vincent Dutre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Again, and I <laughs> I love that the the Gamle Eric <laughs> Gamle Eric. That's cool. Yes. Yeah, this sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to try this one out because I, I like playing solo games. And it's neat too. Just I know nothing about Danish mythology. So there you go. Embedded in the game and drawing from that gives a very different feel because it's not familiar. It's not, you know, the, the king has died and we're replacing the king. There's not, I don't know. It's just something different that you are yeah. digging into. Yeah. And sort of setting your mind on different paths. So, Excellent, excellent. Uh, my next game is 1998 ISS, which is a game about the kind of the birth of the International Space Station designed by Gerard Asensi and Ferran Renalius, the, the two designers behind La Cremosa and On the Origins of Species. Mm-hmm. And it's published by Looping Games, who have this series of these 19xx games, this small box games that I actually, <laughs> well, a funny story I'll share at the end. But 1998 ISS comes in this uh, small box and the the game board, and I'm putting air quotes up, um, is kind of set up with laying out different cards and it actually has like a really nice table presence. So you'll see basically the inside and outside of the ISS. And then you also have this area that kind of represents earth. So on your turn, you can take one of eight actions and four of the actions are earth actions, which you'll take on earth. And then the other four are ISS actions, which you'll take on the ISS or in the outside of the ISS. And basically players are, we're running space agencies and you're using, you're placing action cubes on different actions, again, either on earth or in the ISS area. And you're you're training astronauts, you're putting them and materials onto space shuttles. 
you're planning for experiments, which is drawing these experiment cards, uh, which are kind of like objectives to fulfill things you need to cash it in for victory points. But then every time you take an action and you put your cube down, you take an action, you're putting it either on the left side or the right side. And there are two shuttle decks. One is the US shuttle deck and the other is the Russian shuttle deck. And you're, you know, possibly putting astronauts and materials on these shuttles. And after you take an action, this countdown for both shuttles, they each have their own countdown. Yeah, they each have their own countdowns. The countdown is going to tick down gradually as you take actions. Like maybe an action is going to say it ticks down to, you know, maybe an action says US one will tick down one. But eventually when either countdown gets to the bottom the space shuttle, the current space shuttle launches, you know, either the US or the Russian space shuttle. And it's going to take all the astronauts and materials to the ISS. And you you can also take modules, (laughs) which you'll kind of build to like give players extra actions. But there's a whole timing element of kind of getting on these shuttles, uh, getting resources on the shuttles, getting them to the ISS, then using those to take actions. And that's where you'll actually perform the experiment cards that you got when you were planning on earth and everything. And you're pretty much like everybody's taking actions and counting down these timers of when these shuttles are going off. I forget how many cards are in each shuttle deck, but basically the game ends when one of the shuttle decks is completed. And I think everybody takes one more turn and then you count up victory points from like your experiments. There are some goals you can kind of uh, achieve throughout the game. And there might be some other ways I'm not thinking of that you can get victory points. But it uh, it's plays in about an hour to an hour and a half. And again, it's in this small box. And the demo I had of it was, <laughs> I only had time for someone to kind of explain it to us. We didn't actually even get to like play anything because <laughs> I had to like run to a meeting. <laughs> but uh, but it was, uh, you know, I got I got a feel for it enough to know and just based on the designers that I want to take it home. I haven't gotten a chance to play it yet, but I love that it's again in these these small boxes that uh, Looping Games does so you can kind of take them anywhere but still have a somewhat meaty game to play in a small box, which you would approve of the box size cuz all the components fill the box and it's a good size. But the story I was going to say is back in 2019 when I went to Spiel for the first time, I bought 1987 Channel Tunnel, which that one is designed by the same two designers that uh, made the Red Cathedral. And mm-hmm. for for whatever reason, like, I don't know if it was on the Spiel preview list, but I was like, oh, this seems cool. I think it's like a two player worker placement game. I never got to play it. It sat on my shelf forever and ever. And then eventually, a couple months ago, I sold it. So I sold it and, and didn't get to play it. Meanwhile, now fast forward, I'm at Spiel 2022, and I'm wanting to buy 1998 ISS. And they were running a deal where they were like, "Hey, we have all these, we have all these 19XX games. You know, if you buy three, you get you know a couple bucks off. If you buy all of them, you know, you get more money off." But I was like, "I'm not gonna go crazy." But I ended up <laughs> saying like, "Oh, I should probably just buy three. So I bought 1998 ISS. 
And then I got 1987 Channel Tunnel again. (laughs) And then I also picked up 1920 Wall Street because I don't know, anything with like stock market related kind of gets me excited. So I was like, "Eh, that's 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 worth trying. So maybe I will actually finally play 1987 Channel Tunnel. (laughs) Maybe so. I'm not going to go crazy five minutes later. I'm going crazy. <laughs> so that, 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 was, that was is your story ni- too with the GMT warehouse sale. <laughs> I know. It's a problem. It's a problem. Shh. Don't tell anyone. That's right. <laughs> you have an excuse, I guess. It's for work. Yeah. It's research. It's research. Yes, I yes. need to. Yeah. It's for work. Exactly. We enable ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, it's it's Matt's fault that he wasn't walking around with me when I was hitting that booth. That's right. <laughs> that's have your money with Matt, and that's it. If you do that too, I'll run there by myself. I have to give Beth my money or something. And luckily, your your game boxes that you're usually getting are usually smaller. So, I mean, th- that was the other thing. These three games are so tiny that I was like, it's not going to take up that much room in my suitcase. It's not going to take up that much room on my shelves. Yeah, you know, but it's the weight as well. Why not? Like, if are they're dense boxes? Oh yeah, and you have to, you have to that volume weight conundrum where you have to balance everything. I can fit this game inside this other game and save volume, but what about the weight? I got to punch it out. I got to put it in my carry on because now it weighs too much. That is actually a whole nother game I played. I should have included it in this uh, episode. But yeah, I had to do a lot of component shuffling, taking games out, like stacking boxes within each other, putting components in this bag to make sure mm. m- the weight of my bags were <laughs> compliant. Yeah, I, that's why I did, a, I did a little video talking about all that. Very small demonstration. <laughs> it's a special challenge that uh, a few people... It is. Only a few people might need, but I'm still working on it. But that was 1998 ISS. You got another game? Yes. My last one, also a small game, unsurprisingly. Uh, (laughs) Another abstract strategy game that I got to play with Kenshota that I had seen earlier, but I wanted to play and make sure that it was suitable to buy and bring home. Uh, the game is Ksar. Responsible. Yes, K-S-A-R, sort of responsible. I could have just let it go and not got it at all. K-S-A-R <laughs> is the name of the game. Standard, abstract strategy, random random letters there. The designer is Philip, uh, Philippe Prue, and the publisher is Ludarden. Uh, Philippe Prue has done lots of games with wooden components, where he just specializes in wood. There's a game, K3, that Helvetique, did where you're making pyramids out of wooden pieces he's done lots of other ones as well so they're fairly small production runs because of course you don't do a lot of uh, high volume manufacturing with these games so this game you make a square grid by putting together some wood pieces and each player has a set of pieces that are one block by two blocks by three blocks So you can imagine a rectangle that's one block tall and two by three wide. And so you have one color blue. I have another color red. We each have some neutral ones. And we're going to take turns putting them inside this square base. And when you put a piece in, it has to touch on the flat side at least two surfaces. So the initial piece can only go in a corner. 
because it has to touch two surfaces. And then another piece can go in another corner or next to where the corners that that creates. Now, the tricky part is a piece cannot touch another piece if it's in the same orientation. So you can put a rectangle flat, so it's only one block high. You can put it on the short edge, so it's three high, and it's got a one by two base. Or you can put it on the long edge, so it's only two blocks high, and it's a one by three base. So the pieces cannot be adjacent if they're in the same orientation. And the goal of the game is to have the largest connected group. The neutral pieces belong to both groups. So if I put it touching a blue piece and a red piece, well, now I've just given us both a point. Duh. That was not good. (laughs) If you don't place the neutral piece, it costs you points at the end of the game. So you want to get them out or you will lose more than you might have gained. If we each gain a point, well, it's better than me losing a point. Gotcha. So you're just trying to take turns, filling this space. It's not all going to be filled based on how you put the blocks in within these placement restrictions to build a large connected group. Very straightforward, very minimal. It's all just... Can you, part of it is that visualization skill. Can you imagine how the blocks are going to fit in a particular area? And can you place a block to leave yourself potential moves in this orientation or that or that or that, depending on what the other person does? Gotcha. So it's all perfect information, abstract strategy, worked beautifully. Um, It's such. So you bought it? I bought it. It was, <laughs> yes, it was the, uh, it was at six o'clock on Sunday. The doors were closing. The publisher's like, you're our last sale. We want to get out of here. And so <laughs> I bought that game. So it, it's just such a beautifully designed little game. And I don't know, it's probably not distributed in the U.S. at all. I don't even know if it's distributed in Germany easily. I have no idea. It's a German publisher. It's a French designer. Uh, the name is no language whatsoever. K-S-A-R. Sar. That's it. It's just such a beautiful little game. Cool. It's the total opposite of everything you've been describing. Because <laughs> it is nothing but plain blocks. Putting it in a grid. Well, I, I do <laughs> love abstract strategy games. And if it's a small box then maybe it's something I can have at some point. So it won't take up too much space on the shelves. Yeah, you tell yourself <laughs> that. And then you, then you get 100 of those. And then it's space. <laughs> well, speaking of wooden components, uh, mm-hmm. my last game is Saigon 75, which is uh, designed by Jean-Philippe Barkas and Pascal Toupe. Toupe? Sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right. And it's published by Nuts Publishing. Uh, The reason I say speaking of wooden components is because this game, if anyone listening is familiar with the coin series, it has similar wooden components to the coin series. I think two sizes, if I recall, that are kind of representing your units. And the setting is it's the end of the Vietnam War after the U.S. left, and it's kind of a game that's capturing the struggles between 
North and South Vietnam from the summer of 1973 to spring of 1975. It's a, it was, I think it was mainly designed as a two player game, but it has a solo mode too that is supposed to be pretty cool. It has asymmetrical factions to portray the differences between the North Vietnamese divisions and the Rangers, Marines, and parachutists and other units of the South Vietnamese division. So they operated very differently historically, and the game captures that. But one of the things that I found really cool about it is, you know, Florent from Nuts Publishing walked me through a few turns and this game looks like something like you would be terrified, Eric, if you walked up to the table and saw it. But it's 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 actually really, really accessible. And we walked through a few turns and like I was into it within minutes after doing stuff. It's like each each side has their own kind of uh, like sequence of uh, things that'll happen on your turn. You'll get a certain amount of units you can kind of activate and move around the map. There are event cards in the game and the setup of actually like where your pieces are is obviously like different, but it was very smooth. And then the combat for it, you roll custom dice that have like an icon that represents a retreat or an icon that represents a hit or blanks, but they're very, very simple and easy to understand. So you're you're rolling dice for combat and it was kind of similar to the Academy Games series that, um, that, what is it? 1775 Rebellion. There were quite a few others. I've only played 1775 Rebellion that Academy did that are these accessible kind of entry-level war games, kind of area control games, I guess. Um, so it had that element to it. Really nice components. And again, I mentioned the coin series because you're activating certain certain units and when you do that you're flipping the wooden piece upside down and there's one side that has a star one side that doesn't i forget which is which like in terms of activation but i just like really appreciated that it was so streamlined and easy to understand but again when i walked up to the table i was expecting something a lot heavier and you know, not this game that can be played in two hours and it has, or less than two hours. I think it's like plays in, you can play it in an hour. Um, But, and it has asymmetrical factions, which I always find really interesting, you know, with a game that plays in an hour or so you could play one side and then in a, in the same evening switch sides and play a second game. So I thought it was really cool. I think this was, I think it was on Kickstarter Years ago, like I saw you, or not you, but Rodney actually did a preview at some show where uh, BGG was at, like in 2018, possibly, where this game was kind of talked about initially. Maybe, and in uh, it's yes, it's probably, that probably sounds right, and that probably makes sense. Nuts is a French publisher. Sounds right. Yes, I think I think it was. But uh, it should be out sometime mid-2023, and uh, I'm looking forward to trying it because, like I said, Florent kind of walked me through a few turns, and we were just in it, and I wanted to keep playing, but of course I had to like run other places. But yeah, that is Saigon 75. I think you would actually like it. <laughs> I think I might still be terrified. I'm not sure. So, <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> I try to hide my fear when I'm presented with new games, but inside I'll be screaming. <laughs> awesome. Well, Eric, it was really cool to hear some of the games that you demoed at Spiel. It's I, such I knew, a different like, experience. It's like <laughs> such a different experience. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it was gonna be like that. That's why I thought it'd be fun to to do this as kind of a you know final spiel wrap-up episode on the podcast. That's right. But there's like there's just so much to talk about from Spiel and so much to write about. There is. I I am extremely grateful that you are there to cover these games <laughs> that I would have I, I feel lost in the world of these games lots of times because I don't have experience mm-hmm. with them. And you have much more background and can draw on that. And of course, the more you play a certain type of game, the more familiar you get with them. And the more sure, you know, the yeah. more you can make comparisons easily. But uh when you talk about um like Fate Forge, I'm a bit like, this sounds like a fantasy game. And like that's that's my experience with it. <laughs> I, I, I have no fantasy game experience. It's just I don't find them interesting. So it blends together. Just like I'm sure abstract strategy yeah. games, if you're not interested in abstract strategy, you're like, this game has wooden pieces that you put on a grid. Awesome. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. You know, there's nothing and I to mean, it. That's that's the that's the cool thing about the hobby, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, there's so many different types of games, uh, you know, to fit everybody's different personalities. But uh, I, yeah, I, since I do love abstract strategy games and also you always seem to find like these really cool, catchy card games too. I love kind of hearing about what you're playing too. That's right. Well, that's good. I, I will bring Trio to BDG Con. Um, Sweet. So, yes. I just... It's so simple and so nice. And uh, of course, it's not out yet. So if I want to do write more and do a preview, I got to bring it myself. Yes, so. yes. Well, I, I'm looking forward to playing that and anything else you want to bring or that's in the library that I haven't played. Yes, the library of 3,000 games. Uh, <laughs> I forget exactly how many there this year, but a lot, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, I'm looking forward to BGG Con should be really fun and it's always great to have the whole team together That's in right. one state. Yes. <laughs> I know we see each other at conventions and that's it. Otherwise, yep. uh, only while we're recording the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, thanks again for chatting today, Eric. It was awesome to hear some of the spiel games you demoed. Yeah. Great talking, Candice. I will see you in a couple weeks in Dallas. You've been listening to the Board Game Geek Podcast, produced and edited by Candace Harris. Special thanks to Matt Fonda for editing and mixing our music. Be sure to visit us on the web at BoardGameGeek.com. You can also find us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch under Board Game Geek. You can reach us by email at podcast at BoardGameGeek.com. Thanks for listening and happy gaming! Happy gaming!